friends, let's pray. Lord, would you would you meet us now, Lord? Let us let us sit around your throne. King Jesus, thank you, Lord. Amen. So it's it's almost 60 years ago to the day, almost, that the then FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover denounced MLK as, quote, the most notorious liar in the country, end quote. A week later, he said the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was, quote, spearheaded by communists and moral degenerates, end quote. A few weeks after that, King was in Oslo. He's in Oslo receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. And these are the opening paragraphs of his address. Your Majesty, Your Royal Highness, Mr. President, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. That must have been fun, must it? It must be fun to be able to say all those things. It must be nice. I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States of America are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. I accept this award on behalf of a civil rights movement which is moving with determination and a majestic scorn for risk. Isn't that good? Majestic scorn for risk. Wow. Excuse me. Risk and danger to establish a reign of freedom and a rule of justice. I am mindful that only yesterday in Birmingham, Alabama, our children crying out for brotherhood were answered with fire hoses, snarling dogs, and even death. I'm mindful that yesterday in Philadelphia, Mississippi, young people seeking to secure the right to vote were brutalized and murdered. And only yesterday, more than 40 houses of worship in the state of Mississippi alone were bombed or burned because they offered a sanctuary to those who would not accept segregation. Therefore, I must ask why this prize is awarded to a movement which is beleaguered and committed to unrelenting struggle to a movement which has not won the very peace and brotherhood which is the essence of the Nobel Prize. After contemplation, I conclude that this award which I receive on behalf of that movement is a profound recognition that nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for man to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. Civilization and violence are antithetical concepts. Negroes of the United States following the people of India have demonstrated that nonviolence is not a sterile passivity, but a powerful force which makes for social transformation. Later, after King had been killed and the civil rights movement had passed and all the rest, one of the ones who was in his inner circle would comment to a reporter and say, yeah, it's, it's true. Some of us in the civil rights movement, some of us believed in nonviolence as an expedient. If we had tried to do anything else, it would have been suicidal. He said, some of us wanted to really believe in it, but we just couldn't get there. We couldn't get over the bump to love and forgive the way that King could. I expect we're all pretty sympathetic to that. I am at least. He said, King was the one who truly believed it. King was the one who truly in himself believed in love and forgiveness. 
I believe that what made King amazing was his ability to hold two things together that I struggle to hold together and I hear from others that they struggle to hold together. He was determined to love and forgive. His goal was the double victory of rights for his people and the conversion and friendship of their enemies. That's the first one. So the double victory, rights for our people and forgiveness and love, winning our enemies over to be friends. But at the same time, he was determined to keep on disturbing. He was determined to keep on being active. He was determined to keep on making trouble, if you will. Did you catch the little bit that he said in his opening remarks there? I accept this award on behalf of a civil rights movement which is moving with determination and a majestic scorn for risk and danger to establish a reign of freedom and a rule of justice. Ultimately, whose reign is that? This morning, friends, is the festival of Christ the King. And the first thing to note on Christ the King Sunday is that we are acknowledging and celebrating a reality that already exists. We're not voting. We're not campaigning. We're simply acknowledging the reality that Jesus is the king. That's his cross. That's his resurrection. That's his ascension to the throne. Jesus is the king. The work is accomplished. It's finished. What we're wrestling with then is how to live into the confidence and the peace and the joy of being children of the king and how it is right to live his kingship, his reign into the world around us. How do we do that? That language itself, some folks find scary. There are lots of ways that we do that. The way we do that that we're going to talk about this morning may be a little bit of a surprise. In our New Testament lesson, which was also from the Gospels this morning, we heard the moment when Peter says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, how many times are we supposed to forgive people? Even seven? No, seven's pretty good, right? Seven is rather tiresome. Oh, here you are again, right? Here we go again. You've done it again. But seven is also, as you all know, in the Bible, it's a number of wholeness, of fullness, right? So Peter's, he's got a pretty good thing going here, you know, even seven times, more than once, more than twice, and it's the number of wholeness. And Jesus says something back to him that obviously doesn't mean, you know, it's not obviously a literal number. He said, no, I say to you, not seven, but 70 times seven, which, you know, of course, Jesus doesn't mean count up to 490 or whatever it is. So what is he doing? Yes, he's saying don't count, but he's doing one step better than that too. In the Old Testament, 
in the story early on in Genesis, way back in the primeval mists, there's a story of Lamech. And Lamech is not a good guy. And we're sort of walking through one of these genealogies, you know, just sort of list of people. Boom, boom, boom. Suddenly you get to Lamech. And Lamech, it says, Lamech had two wives. And you sort of sit there and you go, ooh, wow. Do we, why do we need to know that? It's the first instance of someone having more than two wives. And you get this picture. It sort of paints in, in really, really vague strokes this picture of like them sitting around the fire. And Lamech is like, I'm going to tell you how bad I am. And he says, you know, if, if someone harms someone else, they get revenge. But if you harm me, I'm going to get revenge 70 times seven times. Right? I'm just going to escalate it just off the chart. Because that's how bad I am. When they were telling us that Lamech had two wives, they're cueing us that he's a problem that he's not interested in a covenant love relationship, but he's a narcissist who's interested in an audience for how bad he is. That's what they're actually cueing for us in that little moment. And then he says 70 times 7. It's the same little phrase. And in the, in the Greek, in the ancient Greek Old Testament, it's the same phrase. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, be the people where the cycle of violence stops. Be the people where the cycle stops. Jesus then, I'm, I'm going to say, notice the look on their faces. So he makes up a quick parable for them, right? Because Matthew doesn't tell us how much time passes between Peter asking the question and Jesus replying and Jesus telling the parable. Matthew just gives it to us, but we don't know that there wasn't a poignant pause where Jesus looked over at them and realized that they were all freaking out. So Jesus tells them a parable, and it's a parable of what? Of a great king. Jesus tells them a parable of a great king, and the great king has a servant who comes to him with a massive debt, basically unpayable is how that would have registered in that day. And the king has mercy and forgives him. And the servant walks out the door and there's a lesser servant to him who owes him a little debt. I mean, we're talking like the $10 level and he, and he just has no mercy on him whatsoever. And the king finds out. And how does the king feel about that? Why does the king feel that way about that? It really calls into question whether he's the king, doesn't it? if you dig down a little bit, whether his reign means anything, whether there's any respect and honor due to him, it cheapens his reign. And so the king is not pleased. Jesus tells that story. So one of the ways that Jesus' reign is made manifest in the world is by forgiving people. But this is tricky, isn't it? I find we get stuck. I find as I chat with folks about this, that we get stuck. We get stuck in a place where we, we don't want to carry on as if nothing happened. 
We don't want to just interact with that person as if everything's okay and nothing ever really happened. And we feel like being asked to forgive means, you know, sweep it under the rug. Don't act like it's real. This is the place, if we're talking about, say, King and the big picture of stuff, this is the place where stuff like the Truth Commission that happened, say, in South Africa, this is the place where that kind of thing is, is so good. The truth gets told. Reality is set. Things are not swept under the rug. They're put out into reality. The story is told. People are vindicated. Or people are confessing. Or some of both. Whatever their personal situation in the whole mix was. And that allows a kind of a collective, you know, fresh air. Kind of a collective breath. Sometimes we don't get that. Sometimes we don't get reality being spoken. People hearing it. The truth being told. The opportunity to breathe that fresh air. I find it's really helpful in those moments to sit at the cross because the cross was truly horrible. And Jesus went there for me. It does not mean that there's some kind of easy equivalence. Whatever I've done is just as bad as whatever's been done to me. It all washes away. It doesn't mean that. It just simply means that the cross is itself. And Jesus is unique. And Jesus went there voluntarily in love, and he calls me to himself. And what happened to him is worse than whatever happened to me. It's all the plotting against him. It's the trial. It's the thorns, it's the lashes, it's the beating, it's the mocking sign, it's the hanging up, you know, naked in front of people by a way meant to kill you slowly. It's the shame of it. It's all this stuff. So even though I may not get the dots connected, or we may not get, or others may not get the dots connected in the way that we want, we still come to the cross. And we realize that the great king has forgiven us. And we're going to live in that reality. We read this morning for our gospel lesson proper, we read the prayer that Jesus gave us. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's a puzzle in a way. I mean, it's more than that, obviously. But it kind of works as a puzzle. There's a nifty rhythm to it. Stay with me here. It won't fry your head. All right, our Father in heaven, umbrella, our Father up there who loves us in heaven. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. As in heaven, right? Father in heaven, as in heaven. So what's heaven? Heaven's where Jesus or God's name is honored, where his kingdom has come and where his will is done. Is that not heaven? Okay, so that's heaven. Then for us, live it. Live it into reality as in heaven, also on earth. That's our life calling. That is the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. The Sermon on the Mount is, guess what? It's a, it's a chiasm. It's a stair step. Up, up, up. Down, down, down. And guess what? The, the hinge, where the entire Sermon on the Mount turns, is as in heaven, also on earth. 
What does it mean to be a human being? What is your deepest call? Wherever you are in life, whatever your gifts are, whatever your story is, whatever place you're in, whatever way you are you know, meant to spend your time, your deepest call is live such that those beautiful realities of heaven become real on earth. That's what it means to be a human being. That's all ethereal. So Jesus then is going to walk us how, through how to do that. You've heard me say this before. If you go up the stairs, you go down the stairs. So they match up. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus made up the word daily. It means the eternal present. It means trust me. When we trust God for everything we need every single day, what does that make him? It makes him really happy because he's a father who loves us. And when we trust him that way, we are doing his will. We're doing the thing he wants us to do because fathers delight when their children trust them because they love their kids so much. We're doing his will. You can work that out in some other verses, but just for the moment, that's enough. Then when we go in that security that God is taking care of us because he's a father who loves us and he's meeting our needs, and we then are able to forgive us our debts, trespasses, sins, all those work, as we forgive those who owe debt, sin against us, they all work. As we are able then to, because we can trust him and we're secure, we are children of the king, the father, then we forgive as we have been forgiven. Then that makes space for Jesus' kingdom to come into the world. Your kingdom come matches up with forgive. This bit is not mystical. This bit is simple. Am I the only one who argues with people in the car who aren't in the car? Am I the only one who argues with people in the shower who think heaven are not in the shower? Am I the only one who imagines, this is embarrassing, am I the only one who imagines myself at Whole Foods getting the ice cream and turning the corner and there they are? Right? And what happens next? They say the dumbest thing ever, and I wither them. (laughs) Right? And they're left as a crispy fried, you know, kernel of their argument. And I go down the road, and I'm doing this, and Jesus says, hey, we could be having so much fun. Right? You could be thinking about how much I love you. You could be thinking about, you know, how much your neighbor is nifty. I could be giving you creative ideas you don't even know what you're missing on yet. The opportunity cost is so high. Feuds take away space for the kingdom of God to be. This is not mystical. It's just flat out like, we're humans. You only got so much time, right? Feuds are all consuming. Can you believe it? I, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe it. I can't. What are they doing? I can't believe it, right? Useless, consuming, exhausting. Even 
when real, and oftentimes it is real because the things that are horrible in this world that happen are real. They are. This is, this is not easy, but it's true. And there's a huge opportunity cost on being wrapped up in all that in our head. And when we can come to the cross and let some of it go, and when we can then get positively engaged in other good things, we're not paying that opportunity cost. We're walking into the good. And the kingdom of Jesus is beginning to be manifest in the world. That's where Jesus goes next then. Lead us not to temptation or guide us through wilderness. Lead us not to temptation to deliver us from evil and deliver us from evil. Right? The Father we trust, we forgive. He's been so gracious to us. We walk in courageous mission like King and the others in the civil rights movement. And when we do that, his name is honored. When we go out and serve people and love them, and we do that courageously, who's honored? Jesus' name is honored. And people in their imaginations can begin to see who he might be. And they move from wondering what's wrong with us to thinking about Jesus. We want people interacting with the person of Jesus. That's what we want. Jesus, in his prayer, is giving us a simple three-step spirituality for living these things in life. And a big part of that, the bit in the middle, is making space for the kingdom of God. Just literally making space for that to be real, to be part of our life, to be able to exist and breathe a bit. King continued, Martin Luther King continued in Oslo that day. Sooner or later, all the people of the world will have to discover a way to live together in peace and thereby transform this pending cosmic elegy. I said, isn't that good? Oh, my word. That's so good. This pending cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. If this is to be achieved, man must evolve for all human conflict. Of, excuse me. If this is to be achieved, man must evolve for all human conflict a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. So, friends, it's Christ the King Sunday. Go to the cross. Remember the resurrection. Think about the ascension. Know that Jesus has done it. You are secure. You are the child of the great King. And he has loved you. Let's pray, friends. We'll be silent for a couple minutes, and then we'll pray. This is a prayer from some of our brothers and sisters in South Africa during the years when they were working to end apartheid. And one of them, and one of their leaders, and some others had been jailed wrote this prayer. O God, whose son in anger drove the money changers from the temple, let the anger of Nkwinkwe Nkomo and his fellow detainees be to the cleansing of this land. O God, I hold before you the anger, the rage, the frustration, the sorrow 
penitence I offer you my own mixed up anger, that it with others may be taken up into your redemptive will, in which the clash between anger and fear, oppressed and oppressor, can give way to the incomprehensible action of agape love, and the whole life on earth shall rejoice in the splendor of your glory. Help us, Jesus, give us yourself in a way that's big enough to move us beyond ourselves. Thank you, Lord.